I would invite you to take your Bible and turn back with me to Jeremiah 33 for this message entitled, The Coming King. Last week we looked at the promised king from 2 Samuel 7, today the coming king from Jeremiah 33, and next week, Lord willing, the newborn king from Luke chapter 1. To close the service today after the message, we'll sing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. The first verse, as you know, says this, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely, lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. And then the chorus, Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to you. O Israel. The music of that song is written in a minor key to reflect the desperation and the angst of the lyrics. It's it's not a song of celebration. It's a song of determined anticipation. That no matter what is going on in our lives, no matter what is happening, He will come. And so that will be a fitting conclusion to uh, the, the text today. Well, the human life cycle doesn't respect our calendars or federal holidays. The, the law of entropy and diseases don't take away a break for Christmas. And so it is that because everyone who lives also dies, there will always be those who pass at what we would consider to be the worst possible time of the year, the Christmas season. When everything in us wishes that we could celebrate all that is well and family and relationships and blessings, it's often the case that grief and sorrow become unwelcome guests in our homes. Most secular Christmas songs present a facade of happiness, while in reality, people are lonely, families are broken. Lives are troubled, and others are just plain stressed out with all that's going on. Those who experience anything resembling a Hallmark Christmas are rare. That's why I'm grateful that what we celebrate at Christmas is not some superficial happiness, but we celebrate the solution to sin and suffering. In fact, I would say that a distinctly Christian celebration of Christmas starts with a recognition that this world is broken. Our race has proven that we can't fix what is broken. In fact, every time we try, we just make things worse. And and knowing that we can't, God himself has provided the solution in the Lord Jesus Christ who was born into this world to address our most significant problem, sin, and its greatest curse, death. And so after conquering sin and death, Jesus ascended into heaven and promised that one day He would return and establish His kingdom on the earth, a kingdom of justice and righteousness where sin and darkness will be kept in the shadows during His millennial reign. And so at Christmas, we celebrate His first coming and anticipate His second coming. And we don't just anticipate it, we long for it, because as much as we may have moments or even seasons of of joy and comfort and ease in this life, the reality is 
the sparks of trouble keep flying upward. And so today's text is written in a time of extreme trouble when it seemed God's promises had failed. But His promises have not failed. And the Spirit inspired this text to encourage everyone whose heart is heavy and struggling to grasp on to hope. Our text for today is Jeremiah 33, verses 14 to 26. And it is a a reiteration of the Davidic covenant that we studied last week from 2 Samuel 7. But before we jump into the text... I need to bring you up to speed with what's happened the five, between the 500 years of God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 and this time in, in Jeremiah chapter 33. Last week we walked through the covenant that the Lord made with David and we noted how elements of it were fulfilled during the time of Solomon's reign. Uh, at that time, the nation of Israel experienced unprecedented peace and unparalleled prosperity. Uh, Solomon oversaw the building of the temple, and what a beautiful temple it was. Uh, replacing that tabernacle of, uh, of skins and, and, and cloth, the, the temple was made with stones that were quarried so perfectly that when they were brought to the, the temple mount, uh, there was no need to use hammers or saws because they fit together precisely. Inside the temple, it was covered with wood, cypress for the floor, cedars for the walls and on the ceiling. So from the outside, it was all stone. And on the inside, it was so covered, you could not see any stone at all. Only beautifully crafted wood that was carved with uh, gourds and flowers, Scripture says. And then there was the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, which was completely overlaid with gold, floor walls, and ceiling. Now, once finished, the high pri- only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, and that once a year on the Day of Atonement. But just imagine walking from the outside where you see this massive stone structure, and then walking inside the temple to see all of the beautiful ornate wood, and then into the inner room, which is completely covered with gold, where all the furnishings are gold. The glory of the temple was just the beginning of the opulence of Solomon's kingdom. You know, when Solomon asked for wisdom and the Lord promised him riches and wealth in addition to wisdom, I doubt Solomon knew what the Lord meant. As one year turned into another, the prosperity of Israel increased exponentially. Uh, News of Solomon's wisdom spread and kings and queens traveled to hear and to see what uh, what was taking place for themselves. And with them, they would bring large caravans carrying gold and silver and spices and horses and mules and precious stones and even weapons. And so the nation became so wealthy with all that was being brought in that the scripture says, silver became worthless because it was as common as stones. And cedar, which, was, which needed to be imported, was as common as the native sycamore trees. In fact, when the Queen of Sheba came to see these things for herself, she, uh, Scripture says that it took her breath away. And when she caught her breath, this is what she said. The report that I heard was true. 
of your wisdom and your words. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I had heard. Israel was a small nation, still is, of course. But it had an import-export business where it would import chariots and horses from Egypt and export them to their surrounding nations. Every three years, ships would come from Tarshish bringing gold and silver and ivory and peacocks and apes into Israel. David, as we know, had a house of cedar that he built. Solomon built for himself multiple homes in different places of ornate wood and precious stones. He also had a throne that he built that was unlike any other throne in the world. It was built of ivory uh, overlaid with gold. And there were six steps from the ground up to the throne. And on the left and the right of every step was a golden lion. The wealth and extravagance of the nation was breathtaking. This was a time of peace like no other. Wisdom flowed from Solomon's mouth and justice ruled the nation. It surely must have felt as though God's promises to David had been fulfilled and their prosperity would last forever. But everything was not as good as it seemed. Despite the immense blessing that the Lord brought to the land, Solomon's heart became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. 1 Kings verse chapter 10 says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart after their gods. Scripture says Solomon clung to these in love. And turn away his heart from the Lord, they did. Scripture says, For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifices to their gods. From such a great height of prosperity, Israel fell, and it fell hard. In fact, between David's time, around 1000, maybe 1050 B.C., To the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC, 21 descendants of David sat on the throne and ruled in Jerusalem. Of those 25, there was one king who started out evil, but ended as a righteous king. Four started out as good kings, but ended poorly. Solomon was one of those. Five of those 21 were generally good start to finish. But of the 21 kings between David and In the fall of Jerusalem, the remaining 11 were wicked. They were evil men who took the nation into further and further darkness. 
Time doesn't allow for us to talk about the specifics of the abominations that Judah practiced over the centuries. You can read that history in the Kings and Chronicles and in the books of the prophets, but suffice it to say that the nation had so turned against the Lord that even those who were good kings could only make superficial improvements, and those did not last long. Every time one of them died, the nation would immediately turn to false gods. Throughout the nations, throughout the centuries, the people of Israel committed all of the abominations of the nations around them, from homosexuality to child sacrifice and the worship of every false god. Their their depravity actually reached such depths that the scripture says the pagan nations around them were embarrassed and shocked at how wicked they were. Well, the Lord showed incredible patience during those centuries. But four years before Babylon came knocking on Jerusalem's door to to destroy the prophet Ezekiel, who himself was in Babylon because he had been exiled, he had a vision where the Lord brought him to the temple in Jerusalem and he watched as the glory of the Lord departed from the temple and left Jerusalem. That vision was needed because If it were not in Scripture, no one would have noticed that God had left. And one would wonder, even if they did notice, would they care? The leaders and the people were so steeped in demonic idolatry that it's doubtful they would have even understood what had happened. Well, Jeremiah was a priest and a prophet. He served as priest during the time of King Josiah, who was Israel's or Judah's last king, last good king. Uh, And God had given him the most difficult assignment to preach and proclaim the judgment of God on a nation that would not listen at all. He's often called the weeping prophet because he wrote the book of Lamentations, which is that gut-wrenching lament written in the aftermath of the destruction of Jerusalem. But you could also say that everything he wrote in this book that bears his name, uh, if fully understood, should cause us to weep because of the, the extent of the depravity of Israel and Judah and the horrors of God's judgments that he promises. As I said, he served as a priest under King Josiah, and it was during that time that, the, that God called him to be a prophet uh, to the nation. And he served as a prophet during the last four kings who were all wicked, Josiah's sons. Those kings hated Jeremiah uh, because he never said anything good to them or about them. Uh, He always contradicted the false prophets that they had set up who would only tell them what they wanted to hear. And they despised him so much they would often put him in prison just so that they wouldn't have to hear about him ministering among the people anymore. And that's where we find Jeremiah here in Jeremiah 33. Look at verse 1 again, which we read earlier. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the second time, while he was still confined in the court of the guard. So here's the situation. Jeremiah is sitting in jail in Jerusalem while the city is surrounded by the Babylonian army that is holding the city under siege. In the end, the siege will take a total of two years And verse 10 here of chapter 33 hints that this word from the Lord comes probably toward the end of that captivity, uh, toward that siege, by saying that Jerusalem is a waste 
without man and without beast, and the streets of Jerusalem are desolate. This would point to the fact that it's near the end because most of the people have died from starvation. By the time the Babylonians broke through the city, they didn't find any resistance because the people who were remaining alive were so emaciated that they had no will or strength to fight. Another factor you could put into your mental picture of what's going on in the city here is given to us uh, in verse 4 there of chapter 33 that it says the houses of the kings and the homes of the city had been partially torn down to, to reuse the building materials to build protections and defenses against the Babylonians. And so as one would look around the city, you would see homes and castles torn down and patchwork defenses all around. This was also about five years after the glory of the Lord had departed from the temple. Whether or not Jeremiah knew about what had happened there, we're not sure. But apart from Jeremiah and maybe his servant, there was no one in the city who was faithful to the Lord. There was only devastation, death, and no hope. Just picture in your mind the prosperity of the time of Solomon. Gold everywhere. Compare that to the utter devastation of this moment. You can almost feel the hopelessness in your gut. The end of Jerusalem has not yet come, but the questions about God's promises have surfaced. Where is the promise of safety and security and peace? Where, where is David's son, whom God promised would sit on his throne and establish his just and righteous kingdom? Has God forgotten? Has God rejected David's line and been unfaithful to his promises? It's in this hopeless situation that the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah and says this. Follow along as I read verses 14 to 26. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings and to prepare sacrifices continually. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the, for the day and my covenant for the night, so that day and night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant will, may also be broken with David, my servant, so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne, and with the Levitical priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be counted and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Have you not observed what this people have spoken? Saying the two families which the Lord chose, he has rejected them. Thus they despise my people. No longer are they as a nation in their sight. Thus says the Lord, if my covenant for day and night stand not, and the fixed patterns of heaven and earth I have not established, then I would reject the descendants of Jacob and David my servant not taking from his descendants rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
but I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. There are three parts to this word from the Lord in this section. In verses 14 to 18, we see the restatement of the covenant. The restatement of the covenant. In verses 19 to 22, we see the certainty of the covenant. The certainty of the covenant. And in verses 23 to 26, we see the defense of the covenant. The defense of the covenant. Let's begin with the restatement of the covenant. Look and notice what it says in verse 14. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Imagine hearing those words while you're sitting in the ruins of Jerusalem, just waiting to be taken captive by the Babylonians. The days are coming? How is that possible? How could God's promises of blessings and prosperity and security come true when the capital city is about to be sacked? That might be the response of someone who doesn't believe in the Lord. But Jeremiah has enough experience with the Lord to know that when the Lord makes a promise, he will fulfill it. This phrase here at the beginning, behold, days are coming, appears 15 times throughout the book of Jeremiah from chapter 7 to chapter 51. Sometimes the the phrase speaks of coming days of judgment, such as in chapter 7, verse 32, where it says, Therefore, behold, days are coming, when it will no more be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom. Topheth was just a place where they would do child sacrifice. But it will be called the valley of slaughter. For they will bury Topheth because there is no room elsewhere. And the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. And none will frighten them away. And I will silence in the cities of Judah and the cities in the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of bridegroom and the voice of the bride. For the land shall become a waste. That's in chapter 7. And Jeremiah is living in those times. Other times, that phrase speaks to a future day when God's blessings will be fulfilled. For example, in chapter 16, verse 14, it says, Therefore, behold, the days are coming when it shall no longer be said, As the Lord lives, who brought up the people out of the land of Egypt. But as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. The Lord is saying that there will come a day when no more will people identify people based on the fact that they were rescued from Egypt, but rather they will be identified based on the fact that God will bring them back from the lands to which they've been exiled. But before that return can happen, judgment must come first and the nation must be spread abroad. The promise is restated here in chapter 33, verses 14 and following are the essential elements of God's promises to David. Note the first promise of a king from David's line in verse 15. He says, In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In the same way that we would speak of a family tree, the the Lord uses that illustration or that metaphor to say that a branch will 
spring forth from the tree of David's family. This son of David will govern the land and will have a global reign which will be characterized by justice and righteousness. This reiterates the promise the Lord had given in 2 Samuel 7 verse 12 where the Lord said, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who who shall come forth from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So God restates exactly what he had told David. And then in Isaiah 9 verse 7, we read about how that kingdom will be characterized. It says of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever. So God's appointing, appointed king will be just and righteous. And he must be just and righteous because that is what defines the rule of the sovereign king of the universe. Psalm 89, 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Speaking of God's throne, steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. So God and God's chosen king will be of one heart and one mind. Note the second promise of national security in verse 16. He says, in those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is a righteousness. Again, this restates the promise in 2 Samuel 7, where the Lord said, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all of your enemies. During the time of David and Solomon's reign, the 12 tribes were one united nation. But after Solomon's son Rehoboam proved to be a fool, the the 10 northern tribes seceded and appointed their own king, Jeroboam. Israel became the name of those northern tribes. And Judah, the name of David's tribe, was the southern kingdom. It was the, the, the name of the southern kingdom, which included Jerusalem. If you're doing the math, the reason that there's not a a 12th tribe in there is because, remember, the the tribe of Levites did not get their own inheritance in the land. The Lord was their inheritance as they were devoted to serve him as priests. Not only was there a conflict at that time among the tribes themselves, and they were warring against one another, but that division showed their enemies, their neighboring nations, that these tribes are weak. And so began centuries of war. And now, at Jeremiah's time, the last vestige of Jewish identity, the capital city, once the center of Israel's worship of the one true God, was about to be destroyed. So this promise that the Lord makes here looks to a future day, when in the providence of God, the nation will be brought back and reconstituted, and they will dwell in safety. Well, we know that less than 100 years after this time, Uh, The nation of Israel did come back, or at least many of them did. They rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple, but it was not without opposition. You can read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah. Over the centuries, Israel's neighbors and conquering nations continue to bring war to their doorstep. Perhaps the longest time of relative peace, if you can call it that, was when Rome ruled Israel. But they were an oppressive regime, and In AD 70, Rome razed Jerusalem to the ground. 
It was not until 1948, as we know, when Jerusalem, or excuse me, when Israel came back together as a nation, but peace has never really come to that nation. But one day, when the king returns and establishes his throne in Jerusalem, there will be everlasting peace. That is God's promise. Look at the third promise of a perpetual dynasty for David in a perpetual Levitical priesthood in verses 17 and 18. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to prepare sacrifices continually. This restates God's promise to David, where he said, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And as we saw last week, by house, he means dynasty. Israel was not to be ruled by one family, uh, and then another family, and then another family. No, there has only ever been, and there only ever will be, one family line that sits on the throne of Israel. From Solomon down to Zedekiah, the last king who sat on David's throne during the time of Jeremiah, all of them were descendants of David. And from that time until today, there has never been a legitimate king in Israel. This, by the way, is why King Herod was trying to kill Jesus at his birth, because he knew he was an illegitimate king, and if the Messiah grew up, Herod would lose his position. So he tried to wipe him out. And as we said last week, the reason that there is no king in Israel now, or that there hasn't been one the last 2,000 years, is because the king has been born, and he is alive but he's sitting at the Father's right hand, waiting until that time when the Father says it's time for him to return and establish his kingdom. Notice here that David's line is not the only one that is promised to last forever. The Lord also affirms that the Levitical priests will remain forever. Contrary to what some believe, this is not fulfilled by the threefold offices of the Messiah. The fact that Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. The Messiah is not a Levite. And the book of Hebrews emphasizes that while Jesus is a priest, he's a priest of another order, right? The order of Melchizedek. And unlike the Levitical priests who are here promised to continue to offer sacrifices, after offering his one sacrifice, Jesus sat down never to stand up for the purpose of making sacrifices again. So what is this perpetual priesthood of the Levites all about? Well, we walked briefly through the series of covenants that the Lord has made with his people uh, over time last week. And one of those covenants is the priestly covenant, which the Lord made with uh, Phinehas in Numbers 25. Uh, Phinehas was a, a Levite who took action in response to Israel's sin and turned away the wrath of the Lord at that time. And the Lord promised him that a perpetual priesthood would come from his line. And so this is that promise restated. Now, all of, God's promise, of all of God's promises, I should say, uh, this is probably the most difficult one to grapple with if you're thinking from a New Testament perspective. We know that the New Testament says that at the death of Christ, he fulfilled the purpose of the sacrificial system. No more does blood need to be offered to to be shed as a covering 
for sin, right? Hebrews 10, 18, where there is forgiveness of these sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. And yet here, the Lord speaks of perpetual burnt offerings being continued. So how are we to understand this? Well, scholars uh, handle this in a variety of different ways. Uh, some of them uh, who are writing, who write commentaries, just skip over it and don't say a word about it. And that's not very helpful. Others affirm the statement, but don't explain the challenge that it can bring uh, from the New Testament. The most popular interpretation is that Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. But as I've noted, that cannot be. Again, Jesus is not a Levite. And therefore, he cannot fulfill this promise and God's faithfulness be maintained. When God promises two perpetual biological lines, one cannot replace another and God still be faithful. So let me give you three reasons why we must maintain a literal interpretation and understand this to be a true perpetual priesthood of ongoing sacrifices. First, Ezekiel 40 to 48 describes uh, the temple that will be rebuilt at the second coming of Christ. And in that temple, sacrifices will be made during that millennial reign of Christ. The millennial reign is when Christ will rule from Jerusalem for a thousand years on this earth, the earth that we live on right now. As well, Isaiah, Zechariah, and Malachi, in addition to Ezekiel and Jeremiah, all affirm that sacrifices will take place when Christ is ruling on the earth. And so when you have five prophets of God who all describe the same future reality without any alternative interpretation, we have to follow the obvious interpretation. A second reason to affirm this is that Hebrews 10, 3-4 says of the Old Testament system, Uh, Of those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year by year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So the sacrificial system pointed to the reality that the wages of sin is death. And it anticipated the sacrifice of the Messiah, which itself would take away sin. But those sacrifices didn't take away sin. They were a a reminder, a pointer. So in a similar way, it may be that the future sacrifices will point back to the sacrifice of Christ as a remembrance, as a memorial. And if you're wondering, well, isn't that the purpose of the Lord's Supper, which we celebrate? Yes, it is the purpose of the Lord's Supper, but it's not likely that we will celebrate the Lord's Supper in the Millennial Kingdom. A third reason that we can maintain a literal interpretation is that the New Testament is clear that the Mosaic law itself has been completely fulfilled by Christ. Not canceled out, but fulfilled. So when the temple is rebuilt and the sacrifices are resumed, it stands to reason that the Lord will establish it under a new law. A new law of the kingdom over which he will reign on the earth. If you think about the Mosaic law, it was tailored to the particular circumstances of the nation of Israel in that time. But there will need to be a new law given the unique circumstances of the fact that God himself in the person of Christ 
is reigning on the earth. So we can't conclude that the sacrifices we read about in the Old Testament are going to be the same sacrifices in type or in purpose as the sacrifices in the millennial kingdom. Now supporting that reality is that there are multiple kinds of sacrifices in the Old Testament in the Mosaic Law. There's burnt offerings of grain and oil and incense and wine as well as of animals. There's also other purposes for sacrifice other than for sin. There's thanksgiving sacrifices. There's peace offerings. There's vow offerings. Uh, Sacrifices would be given for ritual or ceremonial cleansing. And so whatever the new law is that Christ establishes when he reigns on the earth, it will likely have a variety of purposes for sacrifices and burnt offerings that we can't understand now. So for these three reasons, we have no reason to interpret this as anything other than God actually fulfilling his promises to Phinehas and Zadok, who is uh, one of Phinehas's uh, descendants, to whom God repeated this promise in Ezekiel. Now, we need to admit that we we may not understand how all of this will work out. I mean, just the thought of sacrifices taking place in the future, we don't get that. But just like the Old Testament saints didn't understand all the details of the Messiah, we can trust God and how he will fulfill his promises. And that's the point. God fulfills his promises. Whenever we try and reinterpret scripture to say, oh, no, no, that's not actually going to happen that way. We're venturing into territory where we are essentially saying God is not going to be faithful to that promise. And that's a dangerous place to be. So God reiterates his promises to David and to the, the nation and to the Levitical priesthood. At a time when all seemed lost for Israel and Judah. The Lord reminds them and he reminds us that he is a covenant-keeping God. You know, it's been said, don't doubt in the dark what you believed or saw in the light. The Lord restates his promises to to center our hope in him. The next two sections we'll walk through more quickly here. Look at verses 19 to 22 to see the certainty of the covenant. The certainty of the covenant. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, so that night and uh, so that day and night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne. And with the Levitical priests, my ministers, as the host of heaven, cannot be counted, and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. Here, the Lord doesn't just make a promise. He actually gives us a way to measure the certainty of his promise. Notice that the Lord says, if you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, if we as a human race could subvert the created order such that there is no longer any day or any night, then God's promises to David and the Levites could be broken. From Jeremiah's perspective, you could be thinking it may be that the Babylonians on the other side of the wall can destroy the city and destroy the temple and remove Israel from its place among the nations. But they have no power over the created order. 
no one, not then and not now, has the ability to affect the cosmic forces that turn one day into the next. Not one man individually, nor the whole of humanity collectively, can alter the rotation of the earth, or the orbit of the moon, or the shining of the sun. So not the force of human strength, or advanced technology, or the impact of pollution can alter the fixed order of day and night. And so it is that God's covenant with David and the Levites is certain. It cannot be broken. God's covenants with them were unilateral and unconditional. The making of those covenants and the sustaining of those covenants was solely the work of God and mankind has no ability to alter them. So as Jeremiah and those few remaining residents of Jerusalem are facing imminent disaster, they can be comforted that God's promises will hold true. Well, there's yet another comparison to creation that the Lord makes here. In verse 20, he refers to the unalterable created order. And then in verse 22, he refers to the uncountable number of stars and the immeasurable sand of the sea. 2,500 years ago, you didn't have to go outside the city to get a clear view of the sky. As long as there weren't clouds, you can see those bright, glimmering stars no matter where you were. We know that an unhindered view of the sky is is enough for anyone to recognize, I cannot count those stars. But now that we have telescopes, and especially the James Webb telescopes, because I'm sure many of you have seen those, that image that it's recently come out, that what was once an impossible number of stars to count has been exponentially increased. As well, he uses the example of sand that cannot be measured. There's no uh, method for measuring sand in the world that we have today. We can't even access the sand, all the sand that there is, to measure it, even if we did have a method. Obviously, someone could come up with some kind of equation to guess maybe how much sand there might be in in the ocean. But there is no way to measure it. And so the uncountable stars and the immeasurable sand illustrate the increase of the descendants of David and the Levites. It's not that they will be numbering in the trillions and beyond number in that sense, but that they will be beyond one's ability to count. This is the certainty of God's covenant promises. They cannot fail, nor can they be changed, nor can they be hindered. God's promises are not going to stumble across the finish line with just one or two possibilities of Levites who can serve the Lord or David's descendants. No, no, no. God is going to bring his promises in full force and in full number. Finally, consider the defense of the covenant in verses 23 to 26. The defense of the covenant. It says, And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Have you not observed what this people have spoken? Saying, The two families which the Lord chose, he has rejected them. Thus they despise my people no No longer are they as a nation in their sight. Thus says the Lord, if my covenant for day and night stand not, and the fixed patterns of heaven and earth I have not established, then I would reject the descendants of David, of Jacob and David, my servant, not taking from his descendants rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. In verse 24 there, the Lord refers to 
this people and what this people are saying about the lines of David and the Levites. This could refer to the Jews who had uh, really the, the promises of God as part of their social consciousness, as part of their national identity, even after they went after the false gods. Or it could refer to the Babylonians outside the walls who are, who are mocking and scoffing God and his promises. At this point, it's been 22 years since Josiah, that last good king of Israel who discovered the law of the Lord and who reinstituted temple worship. Now, with the Babylonians on their doorstep, they've come to the conclusion that God's promises have failed. That God has rejected the Davidic and Levitical lines. But that conclusion is a judgment against God. That he can, in one moment, make promises, but then in the next moment, change his mind. That is not what God is like. He keeps his promises. So here he defends his covenant in a way that he has already, in a similar way that he's already spoken. Right earlier, he pointed us back to the created order and said that if you can uh, break the covenant with day and night, then his uh, promises can be broken. Here he says, if morning still comes and night still falls, then my covenants are still in place. If it was the Lord who established the heavens and the earth and their orbits, then it was he who established the equally fixed covenants with David and the Levites. On the other hand, if the sun doesn't rise or if the moon stops circling the earth, then it may happen that God has rejected his people. But until then, his covenants are true. And so the Lord concludes that despite what is what the nation is going through, despite the destruction they're experiencing, the day will come when he will restore them as a nation. They will once again dwell in peace and safety. And one from David's line will sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem. Right now they are receiving the the judgments that are due to them because of their rebellion. But one day, one day, the Lord will have mercy. And he will restore their fortunes. From Jeremiah's perspective, or his standpoint, Israel will have to wait over 500 years before they see a glimpse of God's promises fulfilled. From our standpoint, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus came and ascended into heaven. But his return is no less certain for us. As we sit here at the end of 2022, a passage like this is a necessary reminder to us that God's promises hold true no matter how dark the days. Yes, life is full of injustices and suffering and sorrow and grief, but soon the king will come and set his throne on the earth. And it may be that the days are growing darker and that the evil one's influence is expanding. But that kingdom kingdom of darkness has an expiration date. At his first coming, when he was born into the world, Jesus fulfilled the requirements of the law and conquered sin and death. His resurrection guarantees that no matter what else is going on in the world, no matter what powers control the levers of government, no one can cancel the promises of God. 
And so as long as there is day, and as long as there is night, we can be certain that David's son is coming. In the midst of grief and sorrow, in the midst of the busyness of life, we can be so focused on what's right in front of us, in the here and now, that the second coming of Christ has, has no impact on our life. But like Jeremiah was hopeless and helpless that his circumstances would improve, we need to be reminded that God's promises have not been forgotten, nor will they fail. The day will come when, when God's promised king will come. He will wipe all of his enemies off the earth with a word, and he will establish his just and righteous kingdom. This world of evil and suffering and death will not last forever. The darkness that fills so many homes and hearts will be cast away by his light. The the brokenness that we experience all around us will be set right. The injustice that defines our courts will be corrected. Oppressors will be judged and the wicked will be no more. That day is coming. And that day will come when the king comes. And make no mistake, the king is coming. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you that you are faithful to your promises. That no matter what we see, we can look to you. And we can know that you will not fail to accomplish all your good words that you have made to your people. So may we trust in you and look to you and celebrate your faithfulness. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.